And if you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 51, uh, right in the middle of your Bibles, 51st Psalm. We began a couple of weeks ago talking about how we can find hope and begin the journey from depression to joy. And we began by establishing what we said were some foundational principles uh, for which we could then talk about this very important subject of depression and joy from the Bible over the next few weeks. And so if you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember perhaps what those principles were. Uh, we said, first of all, it's important to know that depression is rampant in our culture today, in our society, in our community, and, and even in our church. And many of you uh, have reached out, some of you from our television audience and many of you from our congregation on Sunday morning have reached out to say, Pastor, uh, you don't know some of the struggles uh, that I have gone through or that people in my family have gone through. When it comes to depression, it is a rampant problem. We said, secondly, that it's a very complex issue. And we should acknowledge that right in the beginning. If somebody ever tells you, if you do this simple thing, that all depression will go away, uh, well, that's probably oversimplifying the case. Uh, depression can involve many factors. I believe always one of those factors is a spiritual factor, but that's not always the only factor, and sometimes it's not even the most important factor. It's just a complex issue, and we need to have... Uh, we need to talk about depression knowing that there can be many different kinds of factors. We said, number three, that depression can strike anyone. Uh, we, we saw Bible heroes week one who suffered from depression. We've talked about pastors down through the years, some of the most noted uh, spiritual men and women through the years who have suffered from depression. Don't think this could never be true of you. Uh, all of us are susceptible uh, to depression. We, we said that depression is a secondary issue, and this is so important. Depression is physical pain, or rather, depression is emotional pain. But similar to spiritual pain, to physical pain, I'm going to get this right in a moment, similar to physical pain, the emotional pain of depression is never actually the problem. It is simply the result of another problem. It, just as if I were to have some physical pain in my body, it's not just the pain that's the problem. Something is causing the pain. And I need to determine what's causing the pain in order to relieve the pain. And the same thing is true when it comes to depression. But then we said, most importantly, week number one, that there is hope in the Lord. Depression can be dispelled by the grace, mercy, and joy that only come from heaven. There is hope hope. There is hope. Now, the next week, last week, we began to give depression a different definition. We said that the world has its definition, but the Bible has a different definition. And when we embrace the biblical definition for depression, oftentimes then we find the real pathway to joy. We said that depression is not so much something that is true of you, it is something that is not true of you. Depression is not so much that you have too much of a negative thing, depression is that you don't have enough of a positive thing. Depression is like darkness. Darkness, you don't ever have too much darkness. If it's dark, you just simply don't have enough light. Darkness is simply the absence of light. Depression is the absence of joy. 
What is depression? It is when we don't have sufficient joy in our lives. And so with that new definition, we looked to Scripture last week to see where is the source of joy. How do we get joy in our lives? And the Bible was very specific, right? It says that joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And it says if we're going to grow this fruit in our lives, we have to abide in Christ, remain in Christ. And so we spent the whole time last week talking about how we chase after God's joy in life. Now, I, I bring all of that back up because I want you to know where we are in the series. That is the foundational truth. Those two things, that there's hope in the Lord and that depression is, is destroyed when joy is manifest in our lives, that's, that's the answer. So people say, Pastor, what, what, what do I do if I'm depressed? You have to reach out to the Lord and begin to have the Lord bear spiritual fruit in your life. That's the answer from beginning to end. But we have four more weeks. So what are we going to do in the next four weeks? We're going to talk now about some very specific biblical strategies that we build on top of that foundation, that the hope is in the Lord and that it is the joy of the Lord that dispels depression. So that's our foundation. Now I'm going to share with you, if the Lord allows, one strategy every week, biblical strategy, to help us overcome depression. Now, I, I take the time to explain all that for this reason. You can't just start with what we do today. Now, I know some of you are here for the first time. That's true every week. We're thankful that you're here. You will be encouraged by the message, I hope, this morning, because it will be a biblical message. But know this, if you really want to overcome depression, you need to go back and get the foundation. And those messages are available online, on our website, audio, video, any format that you need. Those are the foundation. Now let's establish some of the strategies that we will build on top of those. Today's strategy is this. There is a connection between depression and unconfessed sin. There is a connection. In fact, you could say there is a correlation between how much unconfessed sin we have in our lives and the depression that we experience. Now I know because I've been a pastor for a few years that when I say that, immediately people begin to push back in their minds. I have said this before. I have led, read the unsigned letters. I, I know people don't want to hear this, but the Bible, and we'll see this uh, borne out in a moment, the Bible clearly draws a connection between unconfessed sin and depression. Now, people push back and say, Pastor, are you saying if I'm depressed that I'm guilty of some terrible sin? Well, just hang with me for a few minutes, okay? Because uh, in, instead of getting defensive, let's see what the Bible says. You may be surprised at the connection in your own life. Even though you didn't see it and you would rather not admit to it, you may discover that this connection between unconfessed sin and depression is the key reason that you struggle uh, the way you struggle. So before you dismiss this idea, that unconfessed sin leads to depression. Let me just remind you of a few things. First of all, sin by its very nature is deceptive. So don't think that you understand fully all of the effects that sin is having in your life. You know, if I were to slam my hand in a door, where would I hurt? 
My hand would hurt, not my toe, right? Because that is a simple problem. You slam your hand in the door, your hand will hurt. Well, when it comes to sin, sin is so deceptive. Sin is so difficult to understand. You can sin in one area of your life and then feel the effects, the consequences in a very different area of your life. You, you, can, you can sin here and experience it in your relationship with your spouse. You can sin here and experience, in your, experience it in your emotional health. Sin is so deceptive, it is so complex that we don't just need to simply dismiss sin's connection to depression because we can't personally draw that line. The, the other thing I want you to see before you just dismiss this connection is that the effects of sin in our lives are very often very subtle. They're often gradual, cumulative, and deadly. I mean, certainly there are some sins that you can commit and immediately your life will be different. But oftentimes, the sins that we're guilty of don't create just a dramatic, instant difference in our lives. And so we dismiss the effect of those sins as, as not very important. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon before? You've been to the Grand Canyon? If not, I mean, everybody knows what it looks like. You've seen the postcards. And so you, you come to the Grand Canyon, and it's this giant ditch out in the out in the wilderness, right? And, and, and it's a long ways across and it's a long ways down. How did that happen? Well, it happened by erosion. That water in a river slowly over many, many years, we could have a debate about how many, but over many, many years, gradually eroded those rocks until it dug that great chasm in the earth. Now, you would not have been able to see any of that happening. You, you could have stood there uh, for, for as long as you wanted. The, the change was so slow. It was so gradual. It was so imperceptible. You could not have seen it happen, but there's no mistaking the Grand Canyon is there, right? And so sin in our lives, it is having an effect. Your sin is eroding your life. You may not be able to see it, you may not recognize, hey, it happened last Tuesday, but it's still happening. Oftentimes, we think of sin just as an isolated event. We think of sin like this, flipping on and off a light switch. If you were at home and, and you went into a room and you just flipped the light switch off and on, okay, you have changed something for just a, a moment, and then you walk away from it and, and there are no lasting consequences. Right? You, you can do that 10 times a day. There are no lasting consequences to that. And we think, you know, I sinned, but I stopped sinning, you know, for, for, for that moment. And now I'm moving on to something else, and then I'll sin again. And we think of these as just isolated events that have no consequence. But the Bible never describes sin that way. The Bible always describes sin as a slow, gradual, accumulating issue, poison in our lives. Let me just give you some of the the biblical allusions to sin. Uh, the, the Bible talks about it as a cumulative weight. You know, imagine that you're, you're walking or you're running and then somebody puts a weight on you and it's just a few pounds, two or three pounds, and so it's not much and you don't notice much of a difference. And then they put another weight on you and another weight and another weight. And so gradually that, that accumulating weight finally will get so much it will just, it'll just 
weigh you down. You won't be able to run. If we continue to put weight on you, it would crush you. So, but, but it's gradual. It's a little bit at a time, and sin has that kind of effect. The Bible talks about sin as a debilitating disease. So if you had some disease that, say, the doctor says it's going to take your life in a, in a two-year period. Now, so you've got a disease, and it's slowly poisoning your body. It's, it's slowly uh, killing your organs, and you're dying. And so you, you live for two years. There's not just one day in there. You say, well, it was on that day that I took a definitive turn. No, it's a little bit at a time. It's almost imperceptible. But in two years, the disease wins, and your body loses and so the Bible compares sin to a disease, a debilitating disease, that a little bit at a time has more and more effect on your life. I'll give you a third illustration the Bible uses. It talks about sin as filthiness, as getting dirty. Now, you can go out today and you can get dirty in a hurry. You know, you can play in the mud or jump in a puddle or dig a hole, I guess, and you could get dirty in a hurry. But, but what if you don't do any of that? What if you stay inside and you just do your normal thing and maybe you have an office job and so you, you, you don't just get dirty in a hurry, but what if you decided that you weren't going to take a shower for three months? You're not going to get dirty in a hurry, so what's the big deal? So, so three months. Now, if we just fast forward to the end of three months, we know what would happen, right? You would stink, okay? Nobody would want to be around you. But when did that happen? Did it happen at day four or day 10? No, it was, you, you wouldn't have been able to pick out a day. It would have just been a little bit at a time. But at the end of three months, it would be unmistakable. You need a shower, okay? So the Bible talks about sin as filthiness. It's something that happens. It's not a light switch, just an independent, isolated event. It's something that continues to have a greater and greater toll and um, an effect on our lives. And one of those effects is depression. Is depression. Now, I want to show that to you in, in Scripture uh, by way of two different psalms. And we're going to land in Psalm 51. We're going to start in a different psalm, but I'll show that to you on the screen. These two psalms were written by King David. And they were written after he had committed some grave sins. The sin uh, he committed with Bathsheba. And uh, most of you know that story. You've been to enough vacation Bible schools. Uh, well, maybe we don't teach that one in vacation Bible school, but you've been to enough church services, you, you know of the sin of, uh, of David and Bathsheba. And, but it was more than that, right? And so after the sin with, with her, I mean, it started with lust, and then it ended with, uh, uh, with adultery and fornication, but then he tried to cover up the sin, then he ended up uh, being deceptive with several people, all of that was sin, and then he ultimately has somebody killed um, in order to further cover up the sins. It was a whole bunch of sins. So at the end of this uh, string of sins, David, not surprisingly, is, is depressed. And we see a period of mourning in his life. It was also attached to something else. But, but David is impacted by his sins. And so he wrote two psalms, two prayers that he prayed. You ever write down your prayers? You ought to try it sometimes. It'll, it'll be... Um, therapeutic to you. Well, David did that, and he wrote down his prayers on these two occasions following this sin, and we learned something about the connection between depression and unconfessed sin in the prayers that he recorded. So we're going to start with Psalm 32, and I think I have that for you on the screen. Psalm 32, verse 1, do we have that? Very good. Look with me here. 
How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Now leave that verse up, if you will, for a moment. Notice that he's talking about a connection between joy and forgiveness. How joyful is the one who? Whose, whose transgression, whose sin has been forgiven, whose sin is covered. We're going to come back to that phrase, covered. His sin is covered in a moment. But, but just notice now, he's making a connection. You're joyful when? When your sin is forgiven. There's a connection between joy and forgiven, confessed and forgiven sin. Now we'll look at the next, uh, well, I think verses 3 and 4 is probably what we have on the screen. Uh, very good. Look at this. He says, when I kept silent, that means when he was hiding his sin. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Now he's not talking about a physical problem. His bones weren't physically brittle. What is he describing? He's describing depression. And if you've been depressed, this description, while maybe more poetic than you would have said, or I would have said, this description sounds familiar. He says, there's just a weight on me, a burden, a darkness, a difficulty. He says, I'm, I'm just sick in my emotions. He says, I am depressed. When I kept silent, I was depressed. So we see here this connection between confessing our sin and joy. When he kept silent, he didn't have joy. He had, he experienced depression. And then we look at verse 5. He says, then, in the midst of his depression, then I acknowledged my sin to you, to the Lord, and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So he closes the loop. He, he recognizes there's a connection between depression and joy. And so he describes his depression and says, I reached though out to the Lord and the Lord forgave me and I experienced joy. I experienced joy. Do you see how biblically there is a connection between the depression we experience and the unconfessed sin in our lives, whether we admit it or not, whether we see the connection specifically between our sin and the depression, whether we've sinned worse than somebody by our estimation or not, there is a connection between unconfessed sin and joy. Now, he writes two Psalms concerning his, uh, his guilt, and one is Psalm 32 that we've looked at. Now I want us to look at Psalm 51. And so hopefully you have turned there in your Bible. Because we're going to read a number of verses. I would encourage you, it's just 19 verses long, go home and read this psalm. Let's be students of this psalm. I'll tell you that in my life, probably a half dozen times a year, um, I just read this to the Lord. I, I'll get to a time in my life and, and, and I'll just say, Lord, I'm, I'm frustrated and I don't really even know how to confess my sin the right way. So... I'm going to plagiarize, and I'm just going to use David's words. Here it goes. And I just open it up and read it. And I don't think it's a bad thing to do. That's one of the reasons why God has given us Psalm 51. We are peering over David's shoulder as he's confessing his sin uh, to, to the Lord. But we're going to pick out just a few verses uh, here uh, today, and we're going to hit a lot of them. But let's start with verse 8. Notice what he says. Let me hear joy 
and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. And what is he talking about? Well, any times he's talking about it, crushed bones, he's talking about depression. That is, uh, that is the biblical word for depression in, uh, in, in his day. My, my bones have been crushed. So he says, let the bones you have crushed, let them rejoice. He says, let me hear joy and gladness. He's saying, I'm depressed and I need relief. Now look down to verse 12. He says, restore the joy of your salvation to me. He says, I've lost the joy, which is depression, right? We learned that last week. Depression is the lack of joy. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. So just two quick lessons we see there. First, guilt and joy are mutually exclusive, all right? As our guilt rises, our joy diminishes, as your guilt rise, rises, big sins, small sins, we'll talk about some of that in a moment, but as your unconfessed sin rises, every time your joy will go down. Now, a lot, lot of reasons why people are depressed, and, and, and I, I understand, and I agree, okay? So, so people will tell me after the service, and, and, and it'll be a good conversation, I, I enjoy having it. Well, pastor, I'm, I'm depressed because of this, and I'm depressed because of that, and I'm depressed because of this. And, you know, all that may very well be true. But that does not change this truth. As unconfessed sin goes up, joy will go down. Regardless of blood chemistry, regardless of, of, of thyroid issues, regardless of Parkinson's disease, regardless of all kind of very legitimate other, other concerns. I know. I agree. But still, when your unconfessed sin goes up, your joy will go down. The second truth I want you to see before we jump into the solution is that forgiveness and joy are available from the Lord. Now, that's just the most wonderful thing. Forgiveness, forgiveness is available. This isn't something you can't get to. There's some things I'd like to have in life, but they're out of my reach. I don't have the capacity or the connections or the cash, right? But, but forgiveness is something we can embrace and we can receive. And so our joy can increase. There's not a person here who has, who has for any reason disqualified himself, disqualified herself from experiencing joy. There's joy in the Lord available to you because there is forgiveness available to you. So how do we get this cleansing? By the way, I'll tell you the end of the story. David does find joy. And he does find that his joy dispels his depression like turning a light on in a dark room. So how do we get joy in our lives through confessing our sin? How can we have this cleansing confession? Well, glad you asked. Let me show you four ways right here in Psalm 51. Number one, we must recognize our sinfulness. In order to receive this cleansing through confession, we must recognize just how sinful we are. Look back at verse 1. Psalm 51, 1. 
He says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. He says, God, you're loving, and I need you to be loving because I've really messed up. Verse 2, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Not just a little bit, God. I need you to do a thorough cleansing of my life. Verse 3, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. What does he say? He says, I was wrong. I rebelled against you. And I can't stop thinking about it. My sin is always before me. He is recognizing his sinfulness. And if we're going to receive this cleansing that leads to joy, that dispels depression, we too have to recognize our sinfulness. Now, here, here's the problem with this. You, most, many people are thinking right now, okay, I've got that. Let's move on to point number two. Maybe it'll be more interesting because I already recognize my, my sinfulness. Well, maybe, but let's spend some time here because maybe not. I really think that this is the most important of all of the things we're going to talk about with confession because most people get this wrong. And because they don't truly recognize their sinfulness, they, they don't, uh, step two, three, four will, will, will be meaningless. Now, what do people do instead of recognizing their sinfulness? Now, see if some of these sound familiar to you. Instead of recognizing sinfulness, some people will blame other people. Blame other people. So you talk to them about their sin, and they say, well, uh, if you knew what my wife did, if you knew what my husband did, if you know what my, knew what my children did, if you know what the boss did, if you, if you knew how people treated me, if you knew what happened... Well, then you would understand. Well, okay, I'm not saying that other people didn't contribute to your difficulty, but that's not acknowledging your sin. Your sin, you still chose to sin. And as long as you're blaming your sin on somebody else's actions, no matter how egregious their actions might be, you will not receive the cleansing of the Lord. You have to say, I did it. You have to own it, as we say today. Not, I didn't do it because they did something. Maybe they did something. Certainly, people do things. But I chose to sin, and I was wrong. So some people, instead of acknowledging their sin, recognizing their sinfulness, they just blame other people. Some people, instead of doing what they should do, do this. They say, I am better than most. Well, listen, I know I've got sin in my life, but it's not, it's not near, near as bad as Andre's sin. And you know, may, may not be, all right? We, we, we excuse our sin by comparing our sin with somebody else's sin. Well, I mean, there are a lot of ways to measure sin. I, I think if we measured it God's way, no, nobody would say that. But, but it, even if by your measurement you somehow are not as bad as Andre, you still have sinned. And as long as you're comparing your sin, you're not recognizing your sinfulness. The third thing that people do instead of recognizing their sinfulness is they will say, well, that was out of character for me. That was an exception. I don't ordinarily do that. That's not me. Well, it is you, right? You're the one that did it. I'm the one that did it. We, as long as you're saying this is an exception, then you're not recognizing the fact that, no, you're rotten to the core, and you desperately need the forgiveness of God. We must, we must recognize our forgiveness. Now, look at verse 5. Keep your Bible open, if you will, to Psalm 51, because we're going to look at a number of verses. Look what he says in verse 5. Indeed, I was guilty 
When I was born, I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Now, that seems a little dramatic, right? He says, I've, he, he is so embracing his sinfulness, he's not blaming it on anybody. He says, listen, I, I, I've been sinful my whole life. I, 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 I've just, that's who I am. He's not saying it's an isolated thing, but it's normally not me. He didn't say it was somebody else's fault, or he didn't say, well, I'm not nearly as bad as the king next door. He said, no, that's sinfulness. That's, that's who, I, who I am. In order to experience the cleansing of the Lord, uh, we've, we must admit, we must recognize our sinfulness. We, we will not experience the cleansing of the Lord if we just think we need a little bit of help. So here's why, here's why there are people who come to church sometimes, people who come to church every week of the year, but who do not really have a relationship with Christ. Some people will, will be in church for decades and not be true followers of Christ because what they think they need from God, what they think they need from Christ is just a little bit of help. See, that's not recognizing your weakness. You don't just need a little bit of help. I'm, I'm telling you, your pastor, I don't just need a little bit of help. It's not like, I, hey, I'm, I'm pretty good. I got this thing mostly figured out, and I just need God to give me a little nudge. No, I am sinful and rotten to the core. And see, God only helps people who know that they are sinful and rotten to the core. Sometimes people will say, I just need God to give me a second chance. I, I, I don't think I've ever mentioned this to you before, but just you might jot this down. Nothing makes me madder than when I hear somebody say that we serve a God of second chances. Now, I know what, I know what you mean when you say that. I, I know people mean well when they say, well, I just need God to give me a second chance. But, but, but that's not an accurate no. Okay, you don't need a second chance. You'll mess up the second chance just as badly as you mess up the first chance. But when I came to the Lord and asked him to save me, I didn't come to the Lord and say, listen, I've messed things up and I need a second chance. Had God given me a second chance, my salvation would have lasted about 15 minutes. No, God didn't give me a second chance. God cleansed me and forgave me with the blood of Christ. I'm not a child of God because I've done pretty good with my second chance. I'm a child of God because I've been covered in the blood of Christ. I am still rotten to the core except for the Jesus that is, that is in me. We have to recognize, recognize our, our sin. We are morally bankrupt. And I, I know that's uncomfortable to hear, but that is the first key to experiencing salvation for one, but also as a saved person, as a child of God, to, ex, to experience the cleansing that brings joy that chases away depression. We have to come to God and say, God, I so desperately need your forgiveness. That is my only hope. I don't just need a little bit of help. I don't just need a second chance. I don't need just a little bit more time. I recognize I am sinful to the core and I need your forgiveness. Now, the second thing, we're, we're trying to figure out how to confess in a way that'll bring joy and chase out depression so i got to recognize my sinfulness. Number two, you have to know who you have sinned against. Know who you have sinned against. Now, we skipped to verse 4 a moment ago, but I want to go back and read it. He says, against you, he's speaking to the Lord, 
against you and you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you passed sentence. He says, God, I have sinned against you. I haven't sinned against anybody else. I've just sinned against you. And whatever you do to me, I deserve it. Now, the reason that seems odd is because I'm thinking of a whole bunch of people he sinned against. What does he mean he just sinned against God? He sinned against Bathsheba. I mean, she, she was a willing participant in, in many ways, but, but he was the king. I mean, we would, uh, we would call that sexual harassment in our day, right? So, so, so that's, that's sin, and, and it is sin. Uh, he has sinned against uh, the nation of Israel because he's done something that has put them at jeopardy and he's uh, not being a representative from the nation to the Lord. He has uh, been very deceptive with all kinds of people. Ultimately, he has somebody killed. I mean, I, I'm thinking, David, you've sinned against a lot of people. Why are you saying, I have only sinned against the Lord? Because, listen, this is important. You can hurt people, but you really only sin against God because God is, is the rule giver. God is the one in whose image you have been made. I've been made in the image of God that, that I would reflect his glory, that, that I, 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 I would honor him with my life. And when I sin, I've sinned against him because I'm made in his glory. God is the Holy One, and He is my Father. And when I sin, I sin against God. I mean, listen, let's don't quibble with whether or not you, you say we well, also sin against other people, and, and we get to some semantics there. But, but the, the gist of it is this. The one you have first sinned against, and the one that matters here, is that you have sinned against God. And that's why David said, Lord, I have sinned against you and only you. And so whatever you choose to do to me, whatever the punishment might be, I deserve it and you are right in punishing me. Now, why is it important for us to admit that we've sinned against the Lord? Well, I think for several reasons. First of all, it takes away the excuse of the sinfulness of others. If you just see your sin as against your neighbor, the person next door to you, and you know, you, you, you kicked... Uh, um, you, you kick their dog, okay, I mean, whatever the sin is. But, but you think, well, I, you know, I did that because they let their dog, you know, go wee-wee in my yard. And so, you know, you got this uh, whole thing. So you excuse your sin because they've sinned and they sinned against you and their sin was worse than your sin and their sin was first and your sin was second. See, as long as you see your sin as against a person, then you can find all kind of justification. No, your sin is against God. I, when I sit down so, sometimes with a man or woman whose marriage is falling apart because of adultery, it, 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 so usually this is the biggest hurdle to get over. We'll talk about the sin, and, and they, they, they'll just have a whole list of reasons why they sinned against their spouse. And, and, and so my job as pastor is first to help them understand your biggest problem is not your sin against the spouse. You sin against the Lord. And you, you can say all kinds of things about your spouse that might or might not be true. I, I don't know. I don't, and I'm not a private investigator. I don't want to know. But you sinned against the Lord. We, we, when we understand that, it takes away the excuse of the sinfulness of others. It also takes the excuse of secrecy away. You know why we don't confess most of our sins? Because we have managed to keep them secret. And as long as it's secret, I don't need to confess it, Right? Well, that might be true if it's sin against another person. 
If I've sinned against Andre, uh, this isn't biblical, I'm just making up, I'm just talking about human ways of thinking about it. So if I've sinned against Andre, so I, you know, I, I came in Friday and I, you know, and I crashed my car into his car, but it didn't mess up my car too bad, and so I just pulled around to the other side of the church and parked. I mean, that didn't really happen as far as you know. <laughs> okay, so he didn't know, so I don't have to confess, right? Now, that, that's foolishness, okay? You do need to confess. But the sin is not first against Andre. It's against the Lord. And guess what? He knows. He knows. So when we understand our sin is first against the Lord, it takes away the excuse of secrecy. It also reminds us of who we need to, who we need to deal with. Have you ever heard somebody say, and I guess I'm probably in the church building more than most of you are, so maybe I just hear this more often than you do. But do you ever, ever hear somebody say that? It's usually tongue-in-cheek. They'll say, you know, you better not lie. We're in the church. You ever heard somebody say that? You can't lie. We're in the church. Now, what? I mean, we're, we're joking around when we say it. But why do we say that? Why is that even funny? Because we think that somehow the sin is worse because you're in the church. Well, I'll just tell you. I mean, don't tell anybody this. It's just between us. It's not any worse here than anywhere else. I mean, if you want to lie, just go ahead and lie here. I mean, you're going to lie at the store, lie here. But, but why do we think it's worse? Well, because we're sort of on God's turf here. Well, what David is teaching us when he says, my sin is first against the Lord, David is recognizing that he's always on God's turf. Wherever you sin, you sin in the church. Wherever you sin, you sin in the, in the, in the temple of, of the Lord. Wherever you sin, your sin is against the Lord. If we're going to confess our sins, we have to recognize our sinfulness. We also have to recognize we've sinned against him. We've got to understand the vertical part of this. Well, number three, I'd love to say more, but, but let's look at number three. Reject concealment and confess your sins. When we sin, there is a compulsion to cover our sin. If you remember, at the beginning, we read Psalm 32, 1, how joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And I told you we we're going to come back to the last few words which said, whose sin is covered. We want our sin to be covered. So the question is, are you going to cover it or is God going to cover it? So how would you cover your sin? None of us are comfortable with just uncovered sin in our lives. So we have our own strategies. Uh, you could conceal it, just try to keep it hidden for as long as you can. You could blame it on other people or circumstances. You could excuse it as common. Everybody does it. You could excuse it as isolated. That's just not really me. It's just something that happened. Or you, you could excuse it as not harmful. My sin didn't hurt anybody. But none of those attempts to cover your own sin are effective. You have, I have no way to cover sin. Do you know the story of Adam and Eve who sinned in the garden? And then God's coming along. What, what do they do? I mean, we've heard this so many times. I think it, it has lost its ridiculousness to us. But we ought to see just how foolish this was. So they hear God coming. What do they do? They sew together. The Bible says they sew together fig leaves. Now, I don't even know how they do this. It's not like they had a sewing machine. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that they, you know, were able to put together a full suit of clothes. So, um, I don't know. I guess they just, they just scooped up a bunch of leaves and just sort of held it. I don't, I don't, I don't know. It wouldn't look full. Now, now what, what was that? 
Well, because they had sin, and when we have sin, there's just something about the way God has created us. We, we're uncomfortable with that. We just feel like it's going to be covered up. And, and how foolish did they think that they could cover up their sin by, by scooping up a pile of leaves in, in front of the Creator? Well, our attempts to cover our sin are just as foolish and ineffective. We don't have anything to cover with. Listen to Psalm 28, 13. The one who conceals his sins will not prosper. So if you try to cover up your own sins, you will not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them, he will find mercy. As long as you're trying to hide your sins by keeping them secret, as long as you're trying to hide your sins by blaming them on others, as long as you're trying to hide your sins by saying they're not as bad as somebody else's sin, then, then you will not prosper. It is the one who confesses and renounces, he will find mercy before the Lord. You don't have anything to cover your sins with, but God does. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace. The only hope to cover your sins is the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not to come to God and say, I need a second chance. I'll try harder. I'll do better. Give me a little bit more time. I just remember that so-and-so made me do it. No. Our only hope is to come and say, I'm guilty of sin, and Lord, I have sinned against you, and I need the blood of Christ to cover my sins. That is my only hope. It is that kind of confession. So how do we, how do we actually, Pastor, how do you confess your sins? How do we confess our sins? Well, you speak, and you don't have to speak aloud, but this isn't just an attitude you have. To confess means to say something, right? So you have to speak, Lord, I did such and such. Say what it is. And what I did was wrong. So you speak. Number two, you agree. God, I agree with you that it's wrong. And, and it, uh, it was sin against you and it broke your heart. So speak, agree, and appeal. Appeal on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, I don't deserve any forgiveness. My only hope is this, that Jesus, who was sinless, died on the cross knowing what I had done. And he said he wanted his punishment to take place of my punishment. I appeal to Jesus. Speak the sin. Agree with its wickedness. And then appeal on the blood of Christ. Number four, the fourth thing we need to do is to live with a humble heart and a broken spirit. Look at verse 16 and 17. Now steps one, two, and three will usher some joy into your life, I promise you. Uh, on the authority of scripture. It'll usher some joy. It may take some time before the joy completely dispels depression. Um, it may not ever completely dispel depression, but it will usher joy into your life. But how does that joy remain? Well, number four, live with a humble heart and a broken spirit. Look at verse 16. He says, you do not want to sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. He said, it's not just some gift I give or some worship that I perform. Verse 17, the sacrifice pleasing to God is this, a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart. We need, first of all, to confess. And in a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation and, and maybe, I don't know, maybe nobody will come down. Uh, and, and that's fine. You can confess where you stand. But I'm going to ask some people just to confess. I'm going to ask some people to come down and just kneel at the altar a minute and confess their sins. But we need to confess. So there needs to be an event. We need to confess in a moment in time. 
But then we need to have, this needs to be the spirit of our life. We need to live with a soft heart. That's what's pleasing to the Lord. The key to, to joy is to be broken. Matthew 5, 4, Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Now think about this. Jesus says, you're blessed if you mourn. He's talking about mourning over your sin, that you're, that, that you're broken over your sin before the Lord. He says, for they will be comforted. The Bible says God's got a big old bucket of comfort, and he wants to pour it into our lives, but he only pours it into the lives of those who have a broken spirit who are humbled over their sin. You, you can be a rock and the, and the comfort will roll off of you, or you can be a soft sponge and the comfort will go into you. Too many of us have too much trash in our attic. You know what I mean by that? If you were just to decide instead of taking your trash to the street, you just stuck it in your attic, that'd probably work for a day or two, maybe a week or two. But as you continue to put that trash in your attic, there would eventually be consequences. And some of us, when it comes to sin, we've been putting trash in our attic for a long time. We've been ignoring our sin and trying to cover up, trying to conceal it or shrug it off. But you know, eventually the trash in the attic begins to seep into the living quarters. And the trash, the sin in our attics begins to affect our lives, our relationships and our mental and emotional health. It's time for us to confess. The Bible uh, gives 11, in, in Psalm 51, it gives us 11 descriptive words that, for forgiveness. It says in verse 1 that when we seek this, that, that our sin will be blotted out. It, it says in verse 2 that we'll be washed thoroughly. It says that you'll be cleansed. In verse 7, it says you'll be purified. It also says you'll be made clean and washed whiter than snow. It says in verse 8 that your bones will be healed. It says in verse 10 that you'll receive a, a clean heart. It says that, that you will be given a steadfast spirit. It says in verse 12 that your joy will be restored. It says in verse 14 that you'll be delivered through every danger. But it all starts with a confession of sin. And some of us are depressed at least in part, because we have it confessed. We have it confessed. So we just with your head bowed and eyes closed for a moment, there are two ways that this could impact you this morning. Maybe you need to confess for the first time. You see, the way you become a child of God, it begins with confession. God, I've sinned and my only hope is Christ. And I surrender my life to you. If you need to do that, do that today be people here in the front, you can come and just take somebody's hand and say, hey, today, for the first time, I confess my sin and that Jesus is Lord. General, many of us, we're, we're, we're Christians, we've been walking with the Lord, there's no question, but it's been a long time. And we've just been chunking some trash in our attic for way too long. And it's affected our lives. We didn't even know how badly, but it's affecting our lives. And it's time just to come clean before the Lord and let him clean you up. Father, I, I've had to live with this message all week long. And Father, every day that I would look at uh, these verses, I, I would be reminded of, of how sin can have such complex effects in my life. And I think you've pointed some of those out to me this week. 
So, Father, I have been forced to get on my knees and just confess all my sin, to say it, say it what it was, to, to say it specifically, and to agree with you, and to appeal to the blood of Christ. And, Father, I pray that others today will do the same thing so that together we can experience the joy of the Lord that dispels depression. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. As you respond where you are here at the front, let's sing.